As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please to, um, to bow and to pray with me. Father in heaven, uh, we come now to the scripture. I pray that you would um, open up our minds, hearts, that you would purify our hearts, that you would cleanse our consciences, that you would give us uh, a sincere faith, that we may hear and receive and believe and live out all that is here. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, turn please to First Timothy. I want to read the first 11 verses of chapter 1. First Timothy in chapter 1, please. Hear the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the holy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been Entrusted. Now remember, we began this letter last Sunday, and it's a letter from this man, Paul, this apostle, this one who is the very authority of God, the authority of Christ. And so as he writes to Timothy, he writes that which is authoritative for Timothy, for the church in Ephesus, for all the churches, indeed for us. He's an apostle, and he, he comes by way of this being a messenger uh, of Christ Jesus by God's command, not his own initiative. And so he's been called by God to do this, so he's sent out by God. And, uh, and, and he writes to Timothy, who he refers to as his true child in the faith. That is, you get this sense of deep relationship between these, these two men, father, son, mentor, uh, this one who is being taught, uh, this apostle who's training up now this young pastor, and, and so so he, he writes this letter to Timothy and his, his purpose, which we considered last Sunday, is so that he can instruct Timothy as into how the church is to behave or how the church is to conduct itself. You might remember from chapter 3 in verse 14, Paul writes to him, he says, I, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so, to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. And so, so Paul's writing this letter to Timothy, saying, this is how I want you, Timothy, in Ephesus, as the pastor of this church, this is how I want you and the people in your church to conduct yourselves. And thus he's writing to us as well in the same kind of way. But he's saying, I want you to know how to conduct yourself, because you see, you're the household of God. 
That means you're the very family of God. You belong to God and to one another. He's your father. He's the head of this family. And thus you are to submit to him, to yield to him, to love him as a child to a father, and to receive from him as a child receives from a father. In the midst of family, you're to treat one another as brothers and sisters, if you will, to love one another. Uh, You're the very household of God. So I want you to to, to know how to behave as such. And not only that, as, as the household of God, you're the very house of God, the very dwelling place of God. He lives in your midst. So I want you to live as a people who's, who, 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 who live in the very presence of God, that God is really among you because you're the church of the living God. That is, you're the one's church, you're the one's called out from the world. And, and God, who is alive, who lives, dwells among you. He sees, and He hears, and He speaks, and He knows, and He acts. So he's really here. He's not like some dead idol. He's not some some figment of your imagination. He's not something that you've made up or anyone else. He's real and he lives and he is God. So that's who you are. And as that, God says, I'm calling you to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. That means not that you determine what truth is, but since the truth has been given to you by God, you are now not to determine the truth, but to display it. You're to uphold it. You're to guard it. The truth is yours, church, as Jesus would say to Peter, I've given you the keys of the kingdom. The truth is yours, church. I want you to display it, to live it out, to uphold it, to guard it, to keep it, to spread it. Uh, Throughout the whole world. No one has this truth really. But you church. I've given it to you. I've entrusted it to you. So Paul says it's been entrusted to me. He'll say to Timothy it's been entrusted to you. And and then it will be entrusted. You will to the assembled people. The very called out people of God. It belongs. He says I want you to display it. I want through you. The world to see. That which is true. So that's who we are. And so he says, now, that means you have to conduct yourself in a particular way because of who you are. So all that we read about in this letter will be informed by that. We're the household of God, family of God. He dwells among us. We're the church of the living God. He really is real. He really is here. He's the one who's called us. He's the one who assembles us. He's the one who dwells among us, the living God. And we've been called to uphold the truth, to be a pillar and a buttress of truth, so so everything that we read about and how we're to conduct ourselves will be informed uh, by that. So uh, it shouldn't surprise us then. There's Paul writes to Timothy. Uh, uh, he, he writes about guarding against those who teach that which is different than the truth that Paul had taught, the apostles had taught, that could come to us from God. No surprise, really, that he says, watch out for these, for these false teachers, these t- teachers, as he puts it, who teach this uh, different uh, doctrine, these ones who devote themselves to myths and endless genealogy. So he says, there's wrong teaching going on, Timothy, in the church in Ephesus. So since the church is the household of God, the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth, then you need to guard and watch out for that which is being taught and that which is false, being taught falsely in the church. Now again, it shouldn't surprise us 
that there's teaching contrary to that which is true. Jesus warned of it. He told of false Christs who would come. He told of false prophets who would come. He told of false teachers who would come. In fact, you remember that when Paul was traveling, after he founded the church in Ephesus, when he was traveling, there's a sense in which you, you, you get the impression that he thought back of the church in Ephesus. And when, it, when he was in Miletus, which was not very far from Ephesus, he called for the elders of the church in Ephesus to come and meet him. And you remember, this is in Acts chapter 20, we talked about it last Sunday. You remember what he said to them. He said, watch out. Beware, there are savage wolves within your church, from among yourselves. And he said, these ones will come and they'll, they'll teach that which is false about Christ. So watch out, elders. Make sure you've got it right in your own lives, this doctrine, this truth, so that you can watch out over the church in Ephesus. And so he, when he writes, Paul does, to this church, he, he says... From the very get-go, there are those who are teaching that which is false, and so you need to charge them not to do that. That's the initial charge uh, to, um, to Paul. And he says, Don't, they're teaching, they're devoting themselves, uh, this different doctrine, to myths and, uh, and endless genealogies. There's a sense in which we could use, I suppose, the word heresy here. Now, that word, we have to be careful with it, because it doesn't mean that every difference within the church is a heretical difference, something that's heresy. As, as we know, there are Christians that differ on various and sundry things. A church government, for instance, uh, how we govern ourselves. And so there are Methodists, and there are Presbyterians, and there are Congregationalists. So, so that, that's one difference, but we don't believe that to be an heretical difference. Right? I think my congregational friends, though I'm Presbyterian in my form of church government, that's all the word Presbyterian means, by the way, uh, the way we govern ourselves, uh, uh, I don't think they think I'm a heretic because of that, nor do I think they're heretics because they're not Presbyterian. So we sort of all get along. We don't do church together because it's really hard to do it both ways. But, 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 but we don't, you know. And even in the context of, of some perhaps even what might be considered more significant issues like baptism, uh, most of my friends who don't baptize babies don't think I'm a heretic. There's a few <laughs> wonder about me, but uh, and I don't think they're heretics for um, for not baptizing infants. I, I think they're wrong, right? And they think I'm wrong, but we don't think it's heretical. We don't we don't think that either one of us, because of that view, is going to be condemned to hell for that kind of thing, or or, or charismatic gifts, or. Or, or sometimes the role of women in the context of the life of the church and how all that works out. These are differences we have. Paul speaks on a couple of occasions to various kinds of differences in the church. And, and what's important there is that we don't hurt one another's faith. He says the kingdom of God isn't a matter of eating and drinking, but it's a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So make sure we, we, you know, we're, we're not calling that which is just a difference... Uh, a heresy. A heresy is that which shipwrecks one's faith. That's the language that Paul uses here later on in the in First Timothy. It, 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 it really results in someone missing, if you will, the landing, missing the place to go, missing the gospel, missing that which is true, and and so so it causes one to be shipwrecked. You, you never get there. It it leads. If you believe that heresy, if you believe that teaching, it's heresy because it can it leads to your ultimate. Missing 
the gospel and thus being reconciled to God and thus leads to your condemnation. And so you get the sense that what Paul is talking about here is very serious. It, it really will lead people uh, astray. Now, now Paul is, is, is consistent in his teaching. For instance, when he writes to the church in Galatians chapter 1, Galatians chapter 1, he writes this. He says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And so when he writes to the church in Galatia, he's saying, I'm surprised. I've just been here. I'm surprised that so quickly you're deserting the truth. Someone, they're teaching a different gospel. And said, really, there aren't. More, there isn't more than one gospel. There's only one gospel. But they're calling it gospel and you're believing it as such. And he says, verse 8, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And so the seriousness, you see, of the truth. And of course, if we are to be a pillar as a local church, and the church throughout the world is to be the pillar, but if we're to be a pillar and a support, a buttress of truth, then how could we then allow that, which isn't true, to be taught concerning the gospel or lived out concerning the gospel? That's the seriousness which is really going on here. Now, now, Paul speaks of, 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 of myths and uh, endless genealogies. We don't ex- know exactly what was happening in Ephesus. Uh, but when we think, think of myths, we think of stories that aren't true, but stories nonetheless that have a, a meaning in this context, a, a spiritual meaning. But you know, when there's a myth, the meaning of the story is generally best known by the author of the myth. And then the author of the myth seems to to control the meaning of it. And so you get a sense that there were some teachers there that had some sort of special knowledge. And so so they were thinking through these myths. And he also uses this expression, genealogies. So the the myths may have been related to Old Testament genealogies. There were people were were picking up on that and saying, well, I'm going to take it further than what Moses did in Genesis. Or I'm going to take this genealogy further than what it's here in the Old Testament scripture. I'm going to make a myth about this family I'm going to make a myth about where this is heading and it'll have a spiritual meaning. But Paul's point is what they're doing with that then isn't leading people to Christ. It's leading people away from Christ. So whatever that is, it's simply leading, he says, to speculations, that is, to questions, but with no definitive apostolic answer, no definitive, what we would say, biblical answer, no definitive revelation from God. This is just coming out of these people's heads. And so it's leading people to to speculate about that and talk about that, all that. And as they're doing that, you get the sense that, that, that Paul is watching this from afar, going, but they're not talking about Jesus. This isn't taking them anywhere where they're going to think about Christ. And so they're just going to be spinning their wheels about these particular issues and these particular questions. And it will never lead them to repenting of their sin and trusting in Christ. And then getting on with living out that gospel, living out that truth. And so he said this simply promotes speculations. And and, and, and he says because rather than... 
the stewardship from God that is by faith. And that's an awkward expression. It's a difficult little Greek thing to translate. Um, but stewardship uh, can mean a number of things or imply a number of things. But, but here this sense of, of administration. A steward is one who oversees and administers something on behalf of another. Well, God's stewardship is that which he administers on his own behalf. The stewardship of God. That is his plan, his plan of redemption. What we might call the gospel, but his, his plan of redemption. And so he's saying, what they're doing in these, these, these false teachers, this different doctrine, is leading them away from the plan of God, which comes by faith. And we say it comes by faith, we don't mean it's unreasonable. We don't mean it's illogical. Uh, we simply mean that it comes from God. It's revealed from, uh, by Him. And it's His plan, and, and thus we receive it, we believe it, we trust, and we trust in Him. So Paul's saying, what is being taught here is just le- leading to speculations. It's not leading people to think of or to come to faith in Christ. And that's the crucial point, isn't it? You see, Paul was, shall we say, intolerant of these other views, Intolerant to the point of saying they're wrong. Not only intolerant to the point of saying they're wrong, but saying that these teachers are to be accursed because of this teaching. And he said that because he realized, he knew, that there was only one way to be reconciled to God, and that was through faith in Jesus. There was no other way. And so if anybody diverts us from that, then they're diverting us from God. If anyone diverts us from that, they're devoting us from being those who live in the midst of the kingdom of God. And rather, they're moving us to live in that which is the kingdom of the evil one, from glory to hell. And so, he spoke very harshly, if you will, very pointedly, about that. Don't tolerate this, Timothy, because they're leading people, if you will, leading them astray. Because what's crucial is that people know and believe in Christ, the real Christ, and so he must be pointed to him. In verse 16 of chapter 3, as we talked about last Sunday, Paul laid all this out. He spoke of Jesus in this, in this what could have been an, an early hymn or a profession of faith. He, he says that he, Jesus, was manifested in the, flesh, in the flesh that is the incarnate Son of God, God with us, the Word made flesh dwelling among us. He was vindicated by the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit attended Jesus at every turn and said, He is the Son Son of God, the Holy Spirit was at his baptism, the Holy Spirit tended to Jesus at his temptation, and in the garden the Holy Spirit um, uh, was the very one who, who was, was, was there in all of his miracles and, and all of his, his, uh, uh, his, his life saying, this very one, this is the very Son of God. And at the resurrection of Jesus, this Holy Spirit attests that all that Christ had done was sufficient to secure our salvation because he was raised with power by the Holy Spirit showing him to be the Son of God and this very spirit witnesses to our spirit that he's the Son of God he was seen by angels not only in the, in the world in which we live and see but also in the unseen world the angels saw him announcing his birth announcing his resurrection announcing his ascension 
He was proclaimed among the nations, that is, that, that God worked through Jesus in such a way that this is the very one, Jesus. He's the one being proclaimed. He's the one being believed in on the world so that we realize that, that, that this attests to the saving power of God until he's taken up into glory to rule and reign from which one day he'll return. So what we believe about Jesus is crucial. We must believe that which is true of him, that which is indeed uh, right. And so these, these teachers weren't, if you will, uh, teaching uh, all of that. They were teaching that which is wrong, leading people astray. And what's fascinating here is that they were making confident assertions. We need to realize that error can be taught with as much conviction and confidence as truth. So they had great confident assertions about all of this, uh, but uh, they simply led to speculations. And then he also says, Paul does, they led into vain discussions, which means it was, it was really worthless, their, their teaching. Now, we need to ask the question, is there any teaching like that going on in the church today? And the answer is, it might not be identical, if you will, but yes, there's false teaching going on in the church today. Some of it isn't of the heretical nature, necessarily. It may be a blip on the screen. It may make it more difficult to know Christ completely and all of that, but, but, but not heretical. But there is most certainly heretical kinds of, of teachings. People have changed the message of the gospel of Christ. Now, it's obvious to us because it's our heart's desire, you see, that, that that message not be changed. We believe that that which was taught by the apostles then is to be taught now. And we pray that we are faithful to that. No new messages, it was John Calvin who wrote in his Institutes of Christian Religion, this. He says, we therefore teach that ministers are not permitted to coin any new doctrine but they are simply to cleave to that doctrine which God has subjected men without exception. And that certainly is true for us. We, we desire that what we teach has been taught throughout the centuries. Thus, thus we read the history of the church. Thus we cling to old creeds that, um, that have been, were written by those who went before us. And we watch our life and our doctrine to make certain that it's consistent with what has been taught throughout the history Throughout the history of the church, consistent with the scripture, I'm sure we fail. At certain points, we hope we don't fail in such a way that hurts the people of God. We pray constantly. I pray constantly, just so you know. That which I, we teach, will not harm you. That's prayed that right there this morning. I was standing right there when I prayed it. Pray it every Sunday. I trust our elders pray it. I trust our teachers pray it that nothing that we teach will be of harm to you, but only be edifying to lead you, really to lead you to Christ. And we know that there are those in the what is called the church today, of course, as we've mentioned before, who deny uh, the infallibility of Scripture, who deny the deity of Christ, who deny the humanity of Christ, who deny that Christ did miracles, who deny that. He lived a sinless life to deny that he was indeed the very Son of God, the very Son of Man, to deny his atoning death. 
deny that his death was any more than just simply his death. Who believe that his death was simply that and not atoning for sin. Who deny his bodily resurrection. Who do not believe that he rules and reigns and do not believe that he'll, he'll return. But the fact that he was a good man who lived as a good example for us so that we can learn how it is that we're to live and to love as well. Um, you know, there are those who do not believe in the sinful condition of human beings. And thus they teach that we're essentially good. We do not believe, therefore, that we need a Savior. We do not believe, therefore, that we need to repent of our sin. We do not believe that we need to trust in Christ. And in Christ alone who's the one who's taken the penalty for our sin. For there is no belief in an eternal punishment or hell. There is no belief in a glory that is to come. So we see all kinds of things weaving its way through what is called the church so we must be very cautious very careful with that we realize that there are certain cults of christianity of jehovah's witnesses and mormonism and the like and all of that and who distort the, the 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 truth of christ and so those who follow those ways will miss it will miss out on this stewardship that is from god that is by that is by faith uh, we realize that there are those who concentrate on particular points that to, could lead to the detriment of people so they miss the gospel thinking only of these things, whether it's a concentration on end times, whether it's a concentration on angels, or a con- con- uh, concentration on mystic, mystic, mystical experiences, or whether it's a concentration of, of getting in this life all that we can from God, whether it comes from various preachers on TBN or Joel Osteen or any of those. And so we realize that there's that kind of teaching that's that's out there in the midst of the church that if it's followed wholeheartedly will miss the stewardship that's from God that comes that comes by faith. We know that there's the Jesus seminar people who sit around and, and read through the Gospels and try to determine the authentic sayings of Jesus. By the way, they haven't found very many that are authentic of Jesus. But it really doesn't matter to them because they don't really believe that any of that really matters anyway. It's simply a mythical story with a message, but not the message of the real Jesus, the message of the real, the real gospel. There's the gospel of Thomas and the various other uh, sort of new sort of gospels that are being found. The gospel of, of, of Thomas stating that it contains 120 of the secret sayings of Jesus. Anytime you see secret or missing in titles, you can rest assured it probably isn't true. Uh, to think that God has been withholding for the last 2,000 years that which was necessary for us to know about him. And so that there's the Bible code people who speak of the Bible as containing some kind of code that we can get messages from it if we just simply count the words or count the numbers or move the words around or any of that rather than just reading it and getting the message that it's to come from us. It's sort of like playing a record backwards. Getting Well, you don't know what records are, most of you, so... Um, <laughs> Paul isn't dead, by the way. But anyway, um, um, then there's the silly Da Vinci Code books and, and, uh, and all of that. Most dangerous probably to us in our day may be the young, articulate, tech-savvy preachers who teach that we're to love one another. And yet they miss emphasis on a God who is one who is holy and who requires for us holiness. And that we're unholy, we're sinful, 
And his wrath is against us. And we must trust in Christ to be forgiven our sins and reconciled to God. Those who teach that God is love, and he is most certainly, but, but miss the fact that he is also just and holy. Those who say that we are to live in such a way as to love one another and be just and merciful and all of that. And, and that is all true, but yet skip the step, the gospel step of saying, yes, that is true, but I am not that. And to be that, I must be forgiven and be cleansed and trust in Christ and be filled with the Spirit and transformed so that I can be that. And so you see, if you miss that essential step, the guts of the gospel, the cross, and you make any statement other than Paul who said, I uh, will never boast in anything save the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world was crucified to me and I to the world, then you see we miss it all. You can't go from unregenerate, unborn again, unbelieving sinner to one who loves And that's the very point of Paul here. He's saying there's those who are teachers of the law who are missing the aim of God's administration. He's saying in verse 5, the aim of our charge, that is the aim of this charge to teach that which is true and not that which is false, the aim of our charge is really love. Now you might expect Paul to say that the, the aim of all of this is faith. But he doesn't say that. He says, really, the aim of all of this, the goal of all of this, is is love. Now, it isn't completely disattached from faith. Because he says in another place, in Galatians chapter 5, that all that matters is faith working through love. Faith and love are related one to another. In fact, even in a moment, he's going to say that this love must issue from a sincere faith. So faith and love are related. But but Paul says, says, really, if, if you follow after these false teachers... And you'll call them, in a bit, false teachers of the law. If you follow these false teachers, then you're going to miss the aim of what God is after. You're going to miss the goal of God's administration of his plan. And the goal of that is love. Now, why would he put it that way? Well, you remember when Jesus was asked of the greatest commandment. How did he summarize? First he said, we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he said, the second is like the first, that we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. So the, the real law of God is, is, is condensed, if you will, summarized by, can be stated by love. Love to God, love to one another. And then you remember Jesus speaking to his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. He said that what's going to mark us out as his people... That which others who don't belong to him will view in us and know that we belong to Jesus. That trait in us that's going to identify us as, as, as followers of Jesus is love. You remember he put it like this. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. The newness of that commandment wasn't the love part, but the quality of that love. That we're to love as he has loved us. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love each other, if you have love for one another. In fact, that same night, chapter 15, verse 12, he says this, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. In fact, he says, in verse chapter 14, verse 15, If you love me, You'll keep my commandments. That is, if you love me, if you belong to me, if you're mine, if you love me, then you'll love each other. Keep my commandment. 
In fact, he even makes this promise to us, Jesus does, in in verse 21 of chapter 14. He says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, remember what his commandments are, his commandment is that we love each other. So whoever loves each other, he says, he it is who loves me, and, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. In other words, he says, listen, if you really want to know me, love each other as I've loved you. And then in chapter 15 and verse 9, he puts it like this. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. That is, live right in the the love that I have for you. If you keep my commandments, that is, if you love each other, you will abide in my love. You'll live in my love just as I've kept my Father's commandments and live in His love. Then when John writes his first epistle, 1 John, he speaks of this very love, for instance, in 1 John uh, chapter 2, he, he tells us that we're to live as Jesus lived. And then verse 7 he writes, Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandments, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him, in Jesus, and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded him. He said, listen, here's the commandment. You need to love each other. If you don't, you're just proving that you're not mine. You're just proving that you live uh, that you live in darkness. And then chapter 3 of 1 John, and verse 10, John writes, But this is evidence, but it is evidence who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So if you don't love each other, Jesus has said, you're proving that you're not mine, that you're really children of the devil. And so we realize that the goal or the aim of this plan of God is so that we love. Then, verse 14, chapter 3, verse 9, uh, John puts it like this. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. And then verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. And then in verse 19, puts it like this. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and treasure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Brother, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. That is, we belong to Him. And this is His commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His command abides in Him, and He in them. And, this, and by this we know that He abides or lives in us by the Spirit that He has given to us. Then in chapter 4, verse 7. John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 
Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Then verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God's, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. And then verse 16. So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. By this is love perfected in us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because he is, because as he is, so also are we in the world. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he does not love, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And then finally, chapter 5 and verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Do you get it? I mean, he's saying, this is, I want to take you from where you are to be one who loves now, it may well be that the false teachers did too. But they skipped too many steps. They missed the real way to get there. Paul writes back in First Timothy concerning this charge. He says, the aim of our charge is love. Why would it be that? Because, you see, the, the ultimate goal is that we be conformed to the image of Christ, both individually and corporately. That's the ultimate goal of this. It isn't just faith. It is that. But faith leads to something, you see. We enter into the kingdom. We enter into reconciliation. We enter into all of this. We receive from God by way of faith. And that faith, you see, brings with it union with God, which transforms us so that we can be conformed to the image of Jesus. And so, Jesus would say, as he said to them on the night that he was betrayed, and the apostles would say of Jesus, if, if you want to recognize if Jesus has been around, if Jesus dwells somewhere, what would you expect to see? And the answer is love. He's the very manifestation of the love of God. And so, when a person is conformed to his image, then you see that person is one who's noted by the characteristic of love and all that that entails. And when there's a community of people who, in whom Jesus lives and resides, a group of people that could be called the household of God, who belong to God, who belong to one another, where God dwells, these ones called out by God to be his church, the church of the living God, if that group of people exists, what would characterize them? Oh, right doctrine and all that. Right faith and all of that. But, but that would lead to something. That would lead to something, Jesus says, that this is a group of people that we would find loving. And so, that's the goal of this, Paul says, that they love. The goal isn't that they, they quarrel. The goal isn't that they argue. The goal isn't that they, they, they pride themselves on their knowledge and all of that. The goal is that they love. Now, he says, now this love issues from something. It comes from somewhere. It isn't inherent in them. And he says, first of all, it issues from, it comes from a pure heart. Now, when 
Paul speaks of heart, he doesn't mean emotions. Oftentimes when we speak of heart, we think of emotions. When, when Paul writes heart, he's writing about the guts of a person, the, 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 that which is essentially true of that person, that which really makes that person tick, the heart. It includes the way that we think. It includes what the older um, um, folks used to call our affections that is what we love and what we hate it it includes uh, our emotions yes and our passions and all of that all that whipped together that is our the the essence of us that is our heart and he said now to really love that has to be pure now if you're thinking and if you know yourself you would say that's the problem it's not so pure you talk about love, I don't know how to get around my selfishness. I don't know how to get around my self-interest. I don't know how to get around my self-concern. When I try to love, even in my best efforts, I get angry and I get impatient and, and I get concerned about being hurt and all of those kinds of things. It seems like, though I'm trying to put the other's interest ahead of my own, it seems like I can't get away from my own interests. That's the problem. So he says the goal of God's plan is to get us into a situation where we're able to love the pure heart that is where our heart isn't mixed like that where really we're concerned about the other and we do that which is best for them and then a good conscience see the conscience you see is the very moral center of a human being knowing that which is right and that which is wrong and it's to be good it's to be pure it's to be single and all of that and, and if you're a thinking person and you understand about love, you say, that's the problem. I don't always know what's best to do. And when I do, I don't always do it. My conscience judges me. And more often than not, it's right. It isn't good. And he says, all this you see then must issue, and this is the faith part of it, from a genuine, from a sincere faith. He says, you can't get there from here. You can't get to love from where you begin. You must go through Christ. You must go through this plan of God. The plan of God, you see, is that you become a gospel person. That is, that, that, that you admit your sin and you fall on your face before God and say, forgive me. And then you depend upon him and you say, fill me. And, and then you go out and you say, teach me. And then the hope then is that you can say, that I may love as Jesus loved. Apostles are teachers of the law who are missing, who are swerving that, as he puts it. As a kid, we used to sing this song, What a Mighty God We Serve. As I got older, I realized it would be more honest of me to sing, What a Mighty God I Swerve. Right? So, you know, we know, we know it, but we're sort of sidestepping all the time. And he says, these false teachers swerved. They missed the goal. They missed the real love. Because they didn't take people to a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And we don't know exactly what they were doing with the law. It may well have been that they were legalists or moralists. And they were saying, here's the law of God. Look how good that is. Now just go and do that. And they missed what the reformers would call one of the essential uses of the law. And that is to convict us of our sin. 
See, first and foremost, Paul lays this out and he makes this sort of odd statement. He says the law isn't, he says the law is good, but it's not for the righteous or the just, it's for the unlawful. In other words, it's to show us our, our sin, our unlawfulness. And he goes and he lists a number of sins here. And really you could, you could tie almost all, we could tie all of those back to, to, to points in the Ten Commandments. Uh, in terms of, of, of being unholy and profane and, and, uh, and ungodly and sinners and all of that, dealing with the first four commandments of, 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 uh, of uh, worshiping God alone and, and only in the way that he is to worship and to, to, to not blaspheme his name and, and not be unholy on his day and all of that. And then the others of, of striking fathers and mothers that were to, to love to honor our parents, not for murders, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, all the sexual sin that's tied up in the adultery commandment, uh, um, enslavers of people, thieves and liars and perjurers, and, and then just sort of as a catch-all phrase, what else is contrary to sound doctrine? What else is contrary to truth? He says, he says what happens is, you see, the, the law is supposed to be held up before us as a mirror. And we're to look in that mirror and look in the mirror of the law and be broken by it so that we're led to Christ. See, when you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror, you're convicted, <laughs> right? At least I am. Uh, but, I, but the mirror can't help me, you see. The mirror can't brush my teeth. The mirror can't shave me. The mirror can't comb my hair. The mirror can't clean my face. Any of that, it, it can't do that. It, all it can do is say, you stand before me ugly. <laughs> condemned, here you are this is you Bill You know, if you want any help you're going to have to reach in the drawer you need something else and there's the same way in which the law does that to us it says here you are I'm just showing you who you are and if we miss and skip that step and we look in that and we say that's it, I can do that then we've missed the aim of it the aim of it is the gospel the aim of it is love by way of the gospel. And so you see, this law then is to take us to our knees, to take us to Christ. And so Paul says to Timothy, says to us, there is anything, if there's anything that gives you the impression that you don't need Christ, that's wrong. If there's anything that tells you that you don't need forgiven of your sins, that's wrong. If there's anything that tells you that you don't need someone to die for you and that one was Christ, that's wrong. If there's anything that enables you to skip that process, skip that administration of God's plan as he, as he brings it to you, then that is wrong. If there's anything that you're doing or thinking or saying or any of that that doesn't have as its heart, as its guts, Christ. Meaning, you, us, me, the sinner, Christ, the Savior. You, us, me, the follower, Christ, the Lord. If there's anything that doesn't have that in it, then that will destroy you. Because you see, the great harm of this false teaching is one is it misses the very glory of God. 
Because notice how Paul puts it. He says, all of this is in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God. The glorious gospel, that is, this gospel is glorious. It's great. It reflects God and there's nothing better. And it's of the blessed God, that is, the God who is completely satisfied, who is completely happy, who is completely content, who is completely right in all that he is. You'll miss all of that. And secondly, this false teaching is as cruel as anything can possibly be to people. been reading a fascinating book just the last few days of a particular man who in one portion of his life found himself to be in a POW camp uh, in Japan in World War II. And, and he's writing about the cruelty of the guards to the prisoners. And, and it was unimaginable. As I read this, it's all I can do to keep from weeping. But you see, a false teaching concerning the truth of Christ is more cruel ultimately to a human being than even that. Because it fails to tell us the truth. It fails to tell us of our sin. It fails to tell us of the sufficiency of Christ. It fails to tell us of the Savior who's come and died, that we might trust in Him and live. And so you see, if we miss that, then for a moment we may feel good. But for eternity, we'll be lost condemned so you see this truth that we live as the people of God to uphold and to guard and display is more important it's a great charge more important than anything else we could imagine because it's the gospel of the glorious blessed God, let us never stray from it. Let's pray, Father.